0: You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Guess what, Will?
2: What's that,
0: Mango?
1: So do you remember A.O. Hell? Like, did you or your friends ever use this? I mean, I know AOL. I can't say I remember AOL. (laughs) Right. So AOL was kind of a hacking program you could use in the early days of the Internet. And this was back when I was like 12 or 13. I mean, I never had it. Like, I was never a great programmer or super into that side of the Internet. Like, I was too busy reading Encarta. But, uh, right. <laughs> but sometimes I'd go over to my friends' houses and watch them play with it. And the thing is, you could cause all sorts of chaos with it. Like, you could log on for free. And uh, this is when AOL was charging you by the minute. And you could do various pranks. But one of the least used and most powerful things you could do was create a username with AOL in it. What do you mean? Like, you, you couldn't use AOL in your name? No, So that was one of the things that AOL used to protect itself. But through AOL, you could sign up as, like, AOL Cop 13 or AOL Guide 26, and you could make yourself <laughs> seem like this legit agent of the company. A- and my friends used to use this mercilessly. What were they doing? Like stealing credit cards or what? <laughs> no, I mean we're not thieves. Like my friends would use it for pranks. So, <laughs> so uh, often, like my pal would go into a chat room where it was clear that like 13 year old boys were trading photos of like scantily clad ladies, and and he'd say. This is AOL cop 13. You've been busted. And and then he'd say, uh, unless you write me a one page apology for your actions, your parents will be notified and your account will be suspended. And by the end of the the summer, you had like a binder full of weird apologies from kids saying they'd never trade bikini photos online again and just don't tell their parents because they're supposed to be playing math games. I mean, that is ruthless. (laughs) I know, but the whole thing did make me wonder, like, how much of our history is still online? And how much does the Internet know about all of us? And that's what today's episode is all about.
2: Hey there podcast listeners, welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass is our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Hang on, I don't know if you've noticed, but Tristan seems to be smirking yeah, a lot today.
1: Why is he so smirky? Big smirks. Good job, Tristan.
2: <laughs> I guess he's in a good mood, but... All right, so it's not Halloween yet, but today we're going to be exploring a topic that many of us do find pretty creepy. And, and and that's asking the question, what exactly does the Internet know about us? And so to find out, we've been combing through user agreements just to see what sort of personal information that we willingly sign away. You know, these are two of our favorite apps and websites. And we'll also take a look behind the digital curtain of the ad tracking industry, you know, just to learn a little bit about how much of our online habits reveal about who we are in the real world. And this was actually a topic suggested by a listener after a trip to the grocery store. And she would explained that she'd purchased a new type of soft drink and that she'd never heard of this drink before and she spotted it there, picked it up. Bought it, went home. She'd never looked it up on her phone, never looked it up on her computer. But then later she found herself getting ads for this same soft drink. And so she was wondering, do these offline purchases somehow connect with what she's seeing online? And so we're, we're going to be looking into questions like this. But I should take a second to say that if you have a question you'd like us to consider on a future episode... Don't forget to reach out to us here. We, we'd love to hear from you. It's parttimegenius at howstuffworks dot com and on our twenty four seven fact hotline one eight four four PT Genius. It is it's still twenty four seven right mm-hmm. around the clock. That's amazing. <laughs> there aren't many fact hotlines that are twenty four seven.
1: There aren't many fact hotlines. <laughs> no, they're not. It's true.
2: It's true. All right. Well, this is also a special episode because we're teaming up with one of our favorite podcasts to tackle two different but certainly related topics.
1: So that's that's right. To to help us cope with some of the unsettling secrets of online privacy, we'll be joined by some of our favorite people, Ben Bolin, Noah Brown, and Matt Frederick. They've they joined us on the show before, but as a reminder, they're the hosts of the awesome podcast Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. and And this week, the guys did an episode on whether it's possible to wipe your history from the web. So we'll talk to them and see if they have any tips they can pass along for how to get a little bit of privacy on the internet. But if you're interested in this topic, be sure to check out today's episode of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. I love
2: what those guys do, and they really are some of our favorite people. I know sometimes we say that, but they actually <laughs> are some of our favorite people. All of them. They're all good guys. All right, so I, I thought we could start with just a general overview of what web tracking is and and how it works. And so to cover the first part of that, you know, just just stop and think about the time you've Googled something like, you know, Things to do in Denver. And then the next time you've used Google, you got a bunch of ads that that, you know, are trying to convince you to book a flight to Denver or something like that. Or, Or maybe you've watched a Star Wars trailer on YouTube and then you sign on to Facebook later that night and your newsfeed contains a target ad for a brand new Star Wars video game. And I think most of us know by now that those eerily appropriate ads, they, they aren't by chance and, and they're the result of web tracking, which is, you know, it's when a series of companies, they work together, they share information, they've compiled all this information on consumers. And this is for the sake of tailoring advertisements to suit specific people. So Mango, I know you and Gabe did a bit
1: of digging on this. And so why don't you give us a breakdown on, on how all of this works? Sure. Well, there are actually a few different methods that companies use to gather information about people online. And one of them is this process called canvas fingerprinting. Basically, websites have this feature written into their script so that when you visit the site, it asks your browser to draw a hidden line of text or even a 3D image. And because of differences between browsers and operating systems and computer hardware, the invisible image that each device draws will be different.
2: So I guess this is where the fingerprinting part comes in?
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. So so the sites that use this method can then share these device fingerprints with third-party advertising companies, and, and they in turn can use them to identify when and how often the same user of the same device returns to the site, as well as which other sites they're visiting in between. All right, so you're
2: saying that these techniques, like canvas fingerprinting, which I'd actually never heard that term before, but they allow companies to track your browsing history all across the Internet. So it's not just the site where you first have this image drawn, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the advertisers can see these fingerprints on any site that allows them. So by looking for which sites the fingerprints show up on, the advertiser can start to get an idea of who this user is and which kinds of products or services they might be most interested in. Actually, I'm curious
2: about this. So these invisible trackers, they're they are hidden on websites and they they kind of sound like web cookies, which we, we've all heard of before. Are, are cookies a form of this same thing?
1: Yeah, so that's what I thought, too. But cookies are these small pieces of data that a website stores on the browser and then recalls whenever you return to that specific site. So cookies are how your favorite websites remember your name or address or your password, what's in your shopping cart, like all that stuff. Right. So they're definitely related to gathering and storing information about users, but they aren't directly related to advertising on their own.
2: But I do remember Gabe saying something about that advertisers are still interested in cookies, so do they find ways to make use of them?
1: Mm -hmm. There's this other process called cookie sync. It's a way that lets companies share the information they've gathered about you through cookies. So they can trade notes to come up with a clearer picture of who you are. All right. So
2: wait just a minute, though, because all these data companies, they collect and they, they share this information. But it's it's supposed to be anonymous, right? Like like based on your phone or your computer, they might know where you live or, or what town you live in or maybe even how old you are. But they still don't know your real name or anything too personal about you, do they?
1: Well, it's anonymous to a point. Like, if someone really wanted to, it's entirely possible to connect someone's anonymous cookie data with their real-world identity. I, I, I mean, we see this kind of thing all the time with cases of identity theft and hacked social media profiles. In fact, it's such a plausible danger that computer scientists don't even use the term anonymous anymore. Instead, they say that companies gather pseudonymous data on their users. Like, the the whole point is that none of us are even anonymous online anymore. Like, we've really just been given a pseudonym in the form Form of, like, these device fingerprints or these assigned numbers or some other kind of digital trace. Which is all a little bit
2: creepy, but, I mean, there's still one thing I don't understand, and that's this connection between online advertising and the spending we do in physical stores. So... I, I kind of want to back up to that first question that we asked at the very beginning of this, and, and that's whether the internet knew my friend had bought that pack of soda. I mean, it sort of feels like it had to know this, right? I mean, otherwise why, after buying it for the first time, did she suddenly have Facebook ads recommending the same product to her?
1: I know, and, and honestly, that's a really big question I want to know, but, but, but before that I want to know what soda she bought. Like, what's the new soda?
2: <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. we got to find out. It's going to be a big one. Hopefully there'll be a sponsor. <laughs>
1: but it It is, you know, I I wish you could say it's coincidence. It's, you know, it feels a little strange that she bought the soda for the first time and and maybe that was the same day that this big marketing push happened. But, you know, realistically, the odds are against that. I, I mean, the major data companies gather an insane amount of information about their users. And most folks know that search engines like Google or Bing or Yahoo, like they keep track of what we search for. But... Big data's reach goes so much further. So, for instance, like Google not only knows where you've traveled thanks to Google Maps and the GPS tracking functions in Android phones, but they also know how fast you were going on the way there. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for Apple and their iPhone. Of, of course, this means they likely know where you live and work too, since those are the places that you're traveling between the most often. You know, but but still, even if my phone and by extension
2: Google or Apple, you know, they they knew I was at the grocery store. How would they know what I
1: bought? And then and then how would Facebook find out about that? So Gabe did some heavy lifting on this, and and uh, and in his research on Facebook, it, it turns out they are actually ahead of the curve in terms of the depth of data they collect on their users, as well as in how they collect it. And the key to that is an advertising tool called Atlas. That the company unveiled back in 2014. So, according to the vice president of ad tech at Facebook, the Atlas system can match the phone numbers and email addresses of Facebook users with the phone numbers and email addresses that consumers provide in physical stores. All right, so...
2: When stores ask for our email addresses or phone numbers at checkout, it's so that they can then sell that information to Facebook? Is that that's the only reason they do
1: this? Well, kind of. I I mean, sometimes that info is used for that particular store's marketing purposes, you know, to email you their monthly newsletter or coupons or whatever. But there are all kinds of data collection companies that act as middlemen between retail stores and online platforms. So, for instance, uh, Facebook partners with a company called DataLogix to get all its store-related info. Okay, so I got it. So I scanned my grocery store club card or I gave the cashier my email address and
2: that information along with the purchase connected to it was then passed along to logics who then shared it with Facebook's advertising system, which you've told us is called Atlas. So is mm-hmm. that, that's that right?
1: Exactly. So Atlas knew that the person with your email address purchased a new kind of soda, that store. And from there, all I had to do was compare that address with the one you've linked to your Facebook account, and presto, like, now Facebook knows just what kind of ad you're likely to respond to in your newsfeed. After all, you've already bought that soda once.
2: You know, it's weird because I, I feel like I... Being clever sometimes when I use this email address that I never use for like real purposes or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, to give to a cashier or to sign up for Your something. Your prodigy account, right? My old <laughs> prodigy account, but I'm using the same one for all of them, so they're still able to make this connection. It's probably the same one that's on my Facebook account, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess it is a pretty ingenious system from a marketing perspective, but. You know, not something that's going to generate all this enthusiasm or goodwill among the public, at least I wouldn't think.
1: Yeah, but but here's the creepiest part, and, and that's that Facebook can do the same with ads that aren't shown on Facebook. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Atlas was made to offer ads on all kinds of different websites, not just Facebook, so the company can match real-world purchases to any ad source from the Atlas network, no matter which site it appears on. That's not all, though. Facebook can also keep track of its users even when they're logged off of the platform. So anytime you load a web page that features a Facebook like or share button, the company gets an alert about who's looking and where. Which is basically like every page out there I on know. the internet. It's something
2: <laughs> I'd not thought about. I mean, so many of these tracking things, they're not that surprising, but the the depth of it, I think, is what's so surprising to me, and that all of this seems to happen under the radar. I mean, I, I do feel like most of us have this vague awareness of web cookies and targeted advertising and all those sorts of things, but I don't know. It's still a little unsettling when you start to look into the specifics and just how deep it all goes.
1: Totally. And it only gets more unnerving when you remember that Facebook doesn't exist in a vacuum. I mean, companies like Twitter and Google, like they've all taken notice and developed their own Atlas-like approaches. And uh, this ability to prove the effectiveness of an online ad gives them more bargaining power with potential clients, which means the sale and trade of our data, that's only going to increase from here.
2: All right. Well, well. maybe our friends at Stuff They Don't Want You to Know have some ideas for how to shut off the information valves that, that are telling these companies so much about our lives. So, so why don't we go ahead and bring them into
0: the studio? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso
3: knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's p-a-c-a-s-o Live
4: Nation presents Concert Week.
2: Okay, so in this episode, we've been talking about all the things the internet knows about us. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our friends over at Stuff They Don't Want You to Know are actually talking about how to remove that information off of the web or, or wherever it is sitting. And, and we're joined by two-thirds of the crew, Ben Bolin and Matt Frederick. Welcome
5: to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having us. Yeah,
6: thanks so much, you guys. Uh, we were really excited to explore this, and uh, it's fascinating if a little bit unsettling. A yes. little bit?
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of
2: bit. Yeah. Thank you. A lot yeah. of it. <laughs> even Even uh, hearing just tidbits from you guys as you're talking about putting the episode together, I typically don't consider myself A paranoid person, but it was hard not to go down that path. I think I'm okay, but Mm -hmm. if you could give us just a little bit of an overview of what you guys have been looking into for the episode.
6: Sure. We looked at uh, a pretty basic question, or so we thought in the beginning, which was uh, can you delete your online footprint your your personal data we we stumbled on the phrase the digital you because there's there's so much information and and so many uh leavings of all your time brushing through the internet right uh and what we found was that there is no silver bullet and, and uh, you must be very, very careful with the types of terms that are used by various online entities, whether they are a private or a public organization.
5: Yeah, specifically terms of service is what uh, Ben's talking about here. The That little thing that you go, yeah, I accept that you scroll through maybe. Maybe it makes you scroll to the bottom <laughs> of the page. Maybe right. you just hit it and go, OK. Has anyone ever read? an
2: entire Terms of Service. I mean, that's the... That's, that's the whole thing. thing, right? Right. Yeah. No, I did
6: no. I did once when my uh, cable was out.
2: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> was
6: it like a three-pager so you could kind of get through it? It wasn't even in my house. It was at someone else's house. If I had brought a book, I
2: wouldn't have read the Terms it, of it Service. It made, made for a much smarter digital you. right. <laughs> <laughs> so envious of your digital you. So well, one of my favorite things that I heard you guys talking about was uh, about your AOL account. And Matt, you are actually looking to go back and... Delete or cancel your AOL account. <laughs> okay. I was like, What year are we having this conversation?
5: So let's go back to two thousand five, two thousand six. Right. Uh, <laughs> old Matt Frederick is in a band, and uh, every band at that time, what do they have? A MySpace page. Right. right. <laughs> okay. Well, also my uh, my email since nineteen ninety seven has been through AOL at this time. So, uh, for some reason, I just stuck with a o l because my parents had it, and I yep. just kept going with it anyway, my Myspace page was linked to my a o l account right so in order to like find my old password and reset it for myspace, had to get in my a o l email and then realized. This is still here. (laughs) Now, the one good thing is my (laughs) ex-girlfriend is still emailing. me. Well, the one good thing is that the AOL service, if you have a free account, they disable your account after I think 180 days of inactivity. okay. Okay. You're not getting emails anymore. But it's still there. And if anyone wanted to get in there, my personal information is still inside the profile. Right which made me super nervous because I haven't <laughs> looked at it since then. Anyway, you try and delete the thing to, to get rid of the AOL and the MySpace. Yep. MySpace relatively easy, but the AOL one, there's supposed to be a cancel your account little icon that you can click on in this mm-hmm. one specific area. Right, right. It wasn't there on wow. the three browsers that I attempted to use and uh, made me a little nervous, so I called up AOL with my phone. Whoa. <laughs> can you believe that? Yeah. I got a hold of somebody, he officially deleted it, and uh, I can still log in right now, which makes me super nervous. Wow. So.
2: <laughs> well, we'd like to make fun of you for that, but you're looking at two people with uh, a Yahoo and uh, a... Prodigy. A prodigy. Yeah, right. <laughs> prodigy. <laughs> we need to pull that up at some point to see if it still exists. That's pretty great. And I'm glad to hear AOL is still up to their old tricks. I remember when you used to try to cancel after you get the free disk and mm-hmm. sign up for however many hours, and they were just Awful when you would call and say that you're
1: ready to cancel. I remember, I, I remember like begging a woman, I was like, I know you're reading off a script, just like, please skip to like nine pages down. <laughs> and I was like almost in tears. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's very much
6: like a, uh, it's, it, it's oddly like a breakup mm-hmm. in, in many cases, you know, and uh, the old adage is true, breaking up is hard to do, but in these cases <laughs> it's, um you run into some misleading and pernicious things,
5: right? Right. It's right. it's a point that we've made in on our, our episodes before that your account, your personal information, and your use of whatever you know page or whatever app, it's highly valuable to these companies.
2: You were talking about it, friends. Though one of the things you guys talked about was the fact that. Even if you don't have a social media profile, mm-hmm. if you are in your friend's phones or whatever it may be, your, your phone number, your address, anything like that, right. it doesn't mean that you are not out there and the your digital you is still mm-hmm. is still out yeah. there. So can you talk a little bit sure. about that?
6: Yeah, your digital you uh, will still exist in perhaps somewhat of a less substantial form. So, uh, for instance, if our uh, co-host and colleague, Noel Brown, did uh, did not have a Facebook for some reason, he's actually the most likely of the three of us to have a Facebook, (laughs) which he would agree with. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if Noel didn't have a Facebook uh, but uh, Matt or I had the Facebook app on the phone or one of you guys did have the app on your phone, then depending on your OS or the type of phone you're using, the app will automatically have access to all your contacts, which means every phone number, every email – that you or your phone touch, uh which means that if any of us knew Noel Brown, then they would already start building sort of a, a framework for him. So they would say, OK, we know there's this guy. His name's Noel Brown. Mm-hmm. His phone number is, you know, five, 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 whatever. And uh he also has this email address and he knows. Uh, Mango, and he knows Will, and he knows Matt, and he knows Ben, and they all work together. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he probably, you know what I mean? Yeah, and this, yeah. this can come from, uh, different sources. So even if you have somehow resisted social media entirely, if you have a, if you have a phone number and or an email address and friends. Yeah, with phones. Yeah, then, which are fairly easy requirements to meet, then yeah, <laughs> the odds are overwhelmingly likely that there is some even rudimentary version of you online already uh, without
2: your consent. Before we let you go, I'm curious. We don't want to give any spoilers because it is a terrific episode, and I hope everyone will uh, will check it out. But do you think you guys will will change your behaviors in any way based on what you've learned in putting together this episode?
5: Well, here's the thing. Um, for a long time now, we have changed our behaviors because we've been looking into this kind of stuff for a while, all we can do is encourage everybody else to do your best to just, you know, don't give too much away for free. And when you, think, when you think about all of the apps that you use on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that you've got on whatever device you use, most of them ask you for your contacts. Most of them are trying to find out where you're going, what you're doing, take pictures of yourself and all your friends and your dog and your family. Just think about it. I did. Um, I, I did
6: assiduously go through and remove apps on my phone until you know you realize at some level you're uh, you become like the the kid in the old Dutch fairy tale trying to plug up a dam mm-hmm. one hole at a time. There are other avenues for this information exchange, uh, and this means that. Uh, for a lot of people and for myself included when i was removing apps it hit me and i thought am i really making a difference
2: or am i just making myself feel mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. you know what i mean wow all right well i hope all of our listeners will uh, hop on over to stuff they don't want you to know and check out this episode uh, can you really erase your digital self but matt and ben thanks so much for joining us thank you
0: thanks this is it your moment
4: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and two-door cinema club.
2: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about all the creepy things the internet knows about us. All right, Mango, so before the break, we were talking about how the purchases we make in physical stores can inform advertisements we see later So there's this blurring of the line between the digital world and, I don't know, the real world, I guess. And and it kind of got me thinking, I mean, what are some of the other ways that our close connection to the web affects our offline lives?
1: Right, because with smartphones, tablets, and all the other easy-to-use recording devices we have now, the people alive today are pretty much guaranteed to be the most self-documented generation of humans to date, which seems doubly true when you add to that the fact that enormous companies are now tracking and recording our interests and behaviors and everything else for marketing purposes. And I mean, if widespread personal documentation has never really been done on this level before, you have to assume there'll be all kinds of interesting social and psychological outcomes for from it, you know, for better or for worse.
2: Yeah, it's true. And, and and not to keep harping on Facebook, but but one of the most interesting examples I found for how these digital platforms affect our lives has to do with the company's memories algorithms, you know, where it, where it will pop up, you'll sign on and in your feed, you'll see these memories from over the years or the past year or whatever it might have been. And so Facebook, you know, uses this algorithm to select these pictures and posts from our past that it then hopes we're most likely to share it.
1: <laughs> Which is how they determined that, like, my urine review is best summed up by, like, when I was stuffing my face with ramen last January.
2: <laughs> uh, last January, last week, whenever it was. I, th- <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. And, and judging by how often I've seen you at that exact scene, I'm, I'm going to say they're not too off base with them. <laughs> but, you know, but when you share these memories Facebook selects for us, what we're doing is we're helping the algorithm learn a little bit more about our preferences. and And then it can play to these more in the future.
1: And do we know at all how this digital memory curation might be affecting us? Well, I did
2: come across this really interesting uh, article in Scientific American. It was written by Julie Shaw, and it talks a little bit about the implications of making forms of social media nostalgia like this into a mainstream thing. And here's what she writes. She says... By having Facebook choose which events are presented as the most meaningful in our lives, it's potentially calling the memories the algorithm ignores. Simultaneously, it's reinforcing the memories it has chosen, potentially making some memories seem more meaningful and memorable than they originally were. Both of these are problematic processes that can distort our personal reality. We may be helping Facebook learn to optimize its features, but the relationship is not symbiotic. Facebook's nostalgia features are messing with our memories.
1: Which is interesting, but I I feel like the photos we keep around have always done this. Like... Have you read Susan Sontag's On Photography essay? I haven't. And I, I only vaguely remember it from college, but but she talked about how the photo you have on your desk from your family road trip is a picture of a family smiling and in a gorgeous place, right? But in capturing that, you're really only showing your most ideal photo. Like you're forgetting the hours of bickering in the car and, and telling your kids to stop fighting and the boredom and all all that arguing that happened, right. and and you're just focusing on this one kind of manufactured pic where everyone's hugging and smiling, right? I, and it's true. I mean, like we self-select the photos that go up on social media to such a degree that we're already altering our memories, and and Facebook only seems to be putting that into hyperdrive. I don't know about your family, but all we
2: do on our trips is, <laughs> is hug and smile and pose together. We're always like one inch apart from each other. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe maybe we're worrying a little too much about this when it comes to Facebook, and especially since it might give us a case of paranoia, which is definitely something else I wanted to talk about, because this is another common condition that's connected to all this online data tracking.
1: Well, I, I mean, it's hard not to be paranoid, right? Like, there's this is almost universal feeling that our online movements are being tracked and recorded and... And because the specifics are so hazy, like, it, it's it's just something that, like, you can't get out of your mind. And and so this is something that came up a lot during my research. For example, I, I, I read this report about last year's consumer electronics show in The Guardian. And it talked about how all these companies that make biometrics and tracking gadgets have lately found themselves dealing with an entirely new clientele. And, and so who would that be? Well, th- that's the thing. It, like, the new customers are ordinary, everyday people. I mean, previously, the people who were most interested in fingerprint scanners for all their, like, electronic devices and the zinc line cases to shield their phones from, like, the electric fields, they were really paranoid. And and they're the people that Nellie Bowles of The Guardian refers to as the tinfoil hat brigade. <laughs>
2: right. Okay. I, I think I get it. I mean, these companies are mostly used by customers who have, I don't know, dabbled with a conspiracy theory or two or... Perhaps they're a bit untrusting of large corporations that monitor them too closely. I mean, I think we all have an image of that type, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm, right? Exactly. But now they're finding the general public is starting to feel those same kinds of concerns. And, and they're taking an interest in the products as well. And that totally freaks these suppliers out. It, it, in that Guardian article I mentioned, the author describes all these vendors that are pretty uneasy at the thought of their wares being mainstream. So mm-hmm. listen listen to how the author describes the scene. Quote, the personal security department at C." Once a quiet, overlooked corner of the flashy gadget show was packed and frenzied this year. Oh, wow. Its popularity stirred an internal reckoning for the security gadget makers who are now central to the conversation about privacy and politics. Some longtime sellers are worried about their new buyers. Well,
2: I don't know. And maybe for for good reason, honestly. I mean, what does it say about society that the average Joe is now suddenly taking an interest in these privacy apps and the anti-surveillance gadgets <laughs> and all that kind of stuff? Nothing good. <laughs> it, it, it actually makes me think of, a you know, this new parenting technology that you see all over. I mean, this is a little bit different, but you've seen this stuff. And, and it's stuff that I'm kind of glad didn't exist at, at, when we were, you know, when our kids were much younger, but stuff like the, the smart baby beds and infant heart rate read. That are oh, yeah. meant to put parents at ease. And, you know, it keeps them over informed about every little detail of their little one's health. I mean, have you heard of this new robot nanny tech? I, I think Mattel put it out earlier this year and it's called Aristotle. No. I they really call it Aristotle. <laughs> it's supposed to be so smart. Well, it's basically this $300 version of Amazon's Alexa, but for kids. It's got all these high-tech features like voice and image recognition and live streaming. But what it also does is it it watches and it listens and it learns from these babies left under its care. And I don't know, I mean, I guess it could help parents keep track of stuff like diaper changes and feedings, but it could also file away all of that user data for Mattel's
1: future commercial endeavors. Yeah, so that, that's definitely something to keep an eye on for sure. But I, I mean, I, I want to make sure we aren't coming across as like Luddites here because, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are all kinds of new technologies that can make childcare and other aspects of parenting much, much easier. And the same is true for like technologies of for other non-kid things. But it's just that, like, all this information can make things more complicated and and leave parents more worried than maybe they should be.
2: Yeah, I mean that's true. And and having all this data at their fingertips can make parents a little paranoid or or even obsessed with the things about their child that really are no big deal. I mean, it's, it's just that constant biometric reporting and. And these status updates, it can make even these minor details seem so much more grim and dire. Again, I'm so glad this stuff didn't exist because I would have <laughs> totally been that paranoid parent.
1: Yeah, and then there's another angle on this whole wearable technology, smart device trend that, that I want to make sure we cover. So I I wanted to talk about the Internet of Things, and that's the phrase a tech developer named Kevin Ashton came up with to describe the interconnected network of physical devices and vehicles that electronically collect and share data. So think of everything from smartphones to smart refrigerators, robotic vacuums. I mean, the list goes on and on, and and pretty soon it's going to be like every single product. Yeah,
2: you know, and I feel like most of us started hearing about this this Internet of Things just a few years ago, but it's actually an older term at this point, right? I I was reading about some of this, and it goes back to, I think, the late 90s or so, and this was before the smart tech boom of recent years.
1: Yeah, so it goes back to 1999, I think, and it was definitely forward-looking, and I, I remember my friend was telling me about it at the time, and he said, MIT was developing this tablecloth that was going to be a smart tablecloth. And I was like, how can you make a smart tablecloth? Right. And he said, basically, like, if you're putting a, a drink down, like a glass of wine at a wrong angle, it'll account for that and catch the glass. And and he was also talking about, like, umbrellas that would tell you it's about to rain and remind you to take them with you. And, and this in 1999. This sounded crazy. But, right. but, like, flash forward 20 years. And according to the analysts at Gartner. 49% of the world population is now online, and around 8.4 billion web-connected items are in use. Wow, that's a lot
2: of devices. Mm-hmm. All right, well, and especially when you consider that both of those numbers, they're only going to rise as time goes on. You know, there's this growing catalog of the Internet of Things, and you, you think about how widespread they are, from cars to household appliances or these health monitoring devices we were talking about, security sensors. And all of these fitness trackers that everybody seems to be using. And it's not just for them. It's like their dogs and their cats and their cows and their babies and all of these <laughs> things. So it's just it's everywhere. And it's led to this level of connectedness that the world has never seen before. And so with that comes this
1: unique brand of paranoia. That's right. So the, the Pew Research Center published a report earlier this year that highlighted the widespread concerns people have about cyber attacks and account hacking and privacy violations related to all these smart things. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Interesting. It's, it's, you know, the very connectedness of the IoT is what makes it seem like a liability. And it is a liability. Like, like, I, I was watching this thing, uh, on Wired and, and they showed how, like, hackers can hack into a car on the highway and just slow it down to 12 miles per hour. Oh, wow. And, in, in fact, I have this one friend who won't buy cars from, like, after a certain point in 1990 or late 80s or something because he has that same fear. Hmm. But so why do
2: you think so many of us buy into this idea of connecting and monitoring all these different things when, you know, we, we do realize that, that they could be potentially dangerous or somehow asking for trouble if we do so? So I, I don't know. Why do we embrace this so wholeheartedly?
1: Well, it's, it's for the same reason most of us don't bother changing our privacy settings on Google or even adjusting the ad preferences on our Facebook accounts, even though we're vaguely aware that they're siphoning our personal info for their own gain. And that reason is what? Convenience. Ah, uh, Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so much easier to accept that our cool tech comes with like a few unsightly strings attached and, and just move on from there. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I mean, think about how hard it would be
2: for people to disconnect from all these platforms and devices that have become a bigger and bigger part of our lives. I mean... I would think some people would probably trade any amount of privacy just to hold on to that connection.
1: Definitely. And that same Pew report I I mentioned earlier, like, it basically says the same thing. They talked to over 1,200 experts and were able to conclude from their responses that the desire for convenience trumps concerns about safety in most people's minds. And and here's a quote from Lee Rainey, the co-author and director of uh, Pew's Internet Technology and Science Research Center the iot will bring advantages that are useful that people's desire for convenience will usually prevail over their concerns about risk and these factors will make it difficult if not impossible for people to opt out of a highly connected life
2: wow all right well i mean i know the internet of things is supposed to be this hopeful concept and it points to this i don't know this more inclusive or connected society but i don't know that's a lot to think about mm-hmm. it's, it's it's pretty crazy but I don't want to go too far down the paranoia path because I I do have to say that that on a funnier note, just looking around, it was great stumbling into some of these ridiculous attempts to cash in on this growing IOT market and – I, I jotted down a few of these. So I, I kind of want to take a few minutes to share some of the more absurd examples of these so-called smart devices. What do you say we do that? Yeah, I love that
1: idea. So uh, I'm going to start. Uh, a funny one I found is is called the Roll Scout. But <laughs> but you can go ahead and think of it as the internet of toilet paper. Right. Because we
2: needed an internet of toilet paper. <laughs>
1: Basically, it's a toilet paper holder that informs you via text, email, or app notification when the roll is empty. Right. And each holder costs about $60. Good and, God. <laughs> I know. But, you know, according to the creators, roll Scout is, quote, especially useful for small businesses such as cafes and restaurants that have public restrooms and are focused on providing the best customer experience possible.
2: I have to admit, I was going to say that was one of the dumbest things I'd heard of, but actually for a restaurant or a hotel or something like that, I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. I also kind of want to buy one of these just because it's so stupid, but (laughs) 60 bucks, I think I'm going to have to pass on that. All right, well here's one in a similar vein of things that we'd put into this uh, much easier to just check yourself category and it's it's a product from Thermos and it's called the Connected Hydration Bottle and it, it it basically keeps track of the how much water you drink and sends your current tally to either your Fitbit app or your Thermos's own water tracking app and it costs $7,000. <laughs> I actually didn't see how much it cost, but it just still seemed unnecessary.
1: So I I found one called the egg minder and it's a tray that fits inside your refrigerator and keeps Track with the quantity and freshness of up to fourteen of your favorite eggs. (laughs) Don't try (laughs) putting a fifteenth in there. (laughs) So this is, this is
2: kind of like the internet of egg trays, I guess. <laughs> so what is it monitoring? Is it monitoring for, like, for cracks
1: in their shells or something like that, or what? No. I, in fact, uh, structural integrity is a little out of their scope. But, right, <laughs> but right. it will send a wireless signal to your phone to keep you abreast of important developments going on in your egg tray. <laughs> so things like uh, how many eggs it currently contains and whether any of them are at risk of spoiling. Wow, this just seems riveting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I know we cover a lot of topics on here that seem sort of silly at first first glance. And then then they, they kind of make more sense once you look into them a bit more. And I have to admit the toilet paper thing was that for me. But I don't know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the egg minder is not one of those
1: things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a safe bet. But you know, the, the, the worthiness of other IoT products and even data tracking as a whole is still something that's up for debate. And chances are, we'll be hearing a lot more about both their time-saving advantages and, and their privacy infringing drawbacks in the years ahead.
2: Yeah, there's this, there's this quote from a writer and sociology professor named Neil Gross, and it kind of seems fitting for this discussion. I had jotted it down here, and it goes, it goes like this. It says, um, in the next century, planet Earth will don an electronic skin. It will use the internet as a scaffold to support and transmit its sensations. The skin is already being stitched together. It consists of millions of embedded electronic measuring devices, thermostats, pressure gauges, pollution detectors, cameras, microphones, glucose sensors, ekgs electroencephalographs these will probe and monitor cities and endangered species the atmosphere our ships highways and fleets of trucks our conversations our bodies even our dreams
1: wow so that, that's definitely like smart and poetic way to think about the future but um you know what else is smart and poetic the part-time genius fact off <music>
2: Alright, let's do I I can kick us off here. Alright, here's something to add to the already immense list of creepy things Facebook knows about you. And that's whether or not your relationship will last. In a 2014 study, a Facebook data scientist concluded that, based on activities and status updates... The company can make scarily accurate predictions about whether a couple will sink or swim. Hmm. According to his research, being Facebook official really helps your chances. I, I wanted to congratulate you and Lizzie on being Facebook <laughs> official. <We> but, are. <laughs> but about half of all Facebook relationships that have survived three months are likely to survive four years or longer.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of gigantic companies that know way too much information about us, do you know that Target can tell if a female customer is pregnant? Occasionally, even before she knows herself. Oh, wow. Wow, how's so, that? I know. So back in 2002, the statistician named Andrew Pohl was hired to help the chain develop a pregnancy prediction model to better advertise to soon-to-be mothers. And as soon as the model was implemented, Target's mom and baby sales have uh, they've skyrocketed, and they've helped to grow Target's revenue by 13 billion dollars in the same period. Good God, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, how about I know
2: where your cat lives.com? This is a, <laughs> uh, a site that helps make the internet a little more transparent. So using invisible geographic location data embedded in the cat photos we upload to social media or other people do. I've never uploaded a cat <laughs> photo to social media. The site presents a sampling of over one million public pictures of cats aligned with their real locations on a world map. This sounds. <laughs> Terrifying to me.
1: <laughs> so we, we've been talking so much about what the internet knows about us that I, I thought it'd be smart to turn the tables and mention a few cool things we know about the internet. Yeah, we'll show that. Yeah. So so for for starters, all the moving information contained on the internet weighs about as much as a single strawberry. What? <laughs> so that's according to a physicist named Russell Seitz, who who determined that the billions of data in motion, like all those moving electrons on the internet, they only add up to roughly fifty grams or two ounces, and and as for the internet's data at rest, the 5 million terabytes or so of, of static information in storage like that adds up to even less mass than a grain of sand.
2: Oh wow, that is incredible. That's uh All right, well for for anyone who wants an eerie illustration of web tracking at work, check out the experimental website known as Click. The once there, a stream of detailed information will call out all the info your browser is leaking online. Everything from the number of core processors in your computer to where your cursor is currently hovering on the page. If you want to try it out for yourself... Go to click, 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 dot, click.
1: <laughs> pretty easy to remember. So here's another dirt we've got on the Internet fact. Uh, according to an article in New Scientist, some researchers now estimate it takes a stunning 152 billion kilowatt hours per year simply to power the data centers that allow the Internet to function. So if you were to add that power to the energy used by all the computers and other devices linked to the net, the total would account for as much as 2% of all the CO2 emissions caused by humans... And just to give that a little perspective, that 2% would put the Internet on the same level as the entire aviation industry. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a
2: lot. Okay. Well, that, that I do have to say that large carbon footprint is definitely something we can use to incriminate the Internet. Should it ever come to this? We'll see if that ever <laughs> happens. But But on that basis alone, I think you get to take home today's title. And that's it for today's show. But be sure to hop on over to Stuff They Don't Want You to Know to check out their episode on how people are attempting to remove their identity from the Internet thanks again to noel ben and matt for joining us and thanks so much to all of you for listening thanks again for listening part-time genius is a production of how stuff works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand
1: Tristan mcneil does the editing thing
2: noel brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing
1: <laughs> jerry roland does the exact producer thing
2: gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army including austin thompson nolan brown and lucas adams
1: and eves jeffcoat gets the show to your ears good job eves if you
2: like what you heard we hope you'll subscribe and if you really really like what you've heard maybe you could leave a good review for us
1: do we do we forget jason jason who
3: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
4: Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade?